Do you consider yourself a sensitive person when it comes to sounds or smells or physical sensations or taste, or maybe even just the emotions or the intensity of what others are feeling in the room around you? Do you judge this kind of sensitivity in yourself or others? Now, many people I know and work with feel caught in this vice grip of having a nervous system that responds strongly to various kinds of sensory stimuli while also feeling judged and deeply misunderstood for being sensitive to things that others appear to not be bothered by in their day-to-day lives. Now, if you feel like you're too much or know someone who feels and responds to various stimuli deeply, then today's show is for you. And if this episode resonates with you, I'd be honored if you would take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with someone who may benefit from the conversations we have on this show. This helps more people discover the podcast and these inspiring and provocative unburdened leader conversations. Thank you so much. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I will never forget a moment shopping at Nordstrom's for shoes with my daughter. Gosh, I think it's about nine years ago now. Now, first, for any of you who have or know someone with sensory issues, you know the immense discomfort shoes, or clothes for that matter, can feel on your body. Shoes were always tricky for my daughter, and I would usually order about a dozen pairs at a time so she could have her own like personal shopping experience at home and try them on without having to do so in public because it was so difficult. And I always ordered from Nordstrom's because the return policy is phenomenal. If you know, you know. And they also carried the brands of shoes that my daughter liked best. Now, as I said, I normally order shoes, but on this day, I, I wanted to get her feet measured and she's getting older. So I wanted her to start to pick out some shoes on her own. So after finding a few pairs, she picked out all by herself. She kind of skipped out of her flip flops and then tentatively placed her right foot into one of the shoes she selected that was in a new size. Now she put on this one shoe and it felt like needles poking her whole body and she lost it. And I was on the floor with her while she was writhing and working through this shock to her system when I noticed someone kneeling beside me while my daughter worked through her discomfort at the top of her lungs. And this kind woman gently put her hand on my arm and spoke to me in my ear and said, I'm a speech and language pathologist. How can I help? And I looked up and I'll never forget her face. And it was different from so many expressions I've seen over the years, especially in public. I am usually met with judgment or eye rolls, distance, head shakes. And I also carry the echoes of burdens of many years of public humiliations used by members of my family of origin as a way to hurt me and assert power over me. So my tender heart held a lot. And the look I witnessed from this lovely woman landed as someone who understood without explanation what was happening. This type of connection, of feeling seen and understood without many words, felt both healing 
and empowering. But again, she moved towards us instead of away from us. She created space that welcomed our experience, no matter how publicly disruptive it was. And she met us where we were at, literally on the floor, with respect and dignity. I looked at her and I thanked her, (laughs) barely getting the words out because I knew I would lose it myself if I said much more or allowed myself to deeply feel the magnitude of the moment along with her kindness and solidarity. I have a special place in my heart for speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, resource specialist teachers, and other individuals who love and empower my daughter in ways that feel aligned to my values as a parent and my training as a trauma-informed psychotherapist. They join me in my commitment to create spaces that welcome all and move away from the ableist standards we have on what it means to be, quote, normal and, quote, healthy. And they're committed to helping kids and the adults in their lives show up authentically without masking and hiding to appease the way things have always been done, (laughs) which is why I wanted Gosh, I I think I needed to have today's Unburdened Leader conversation and share these incredible leaders with you all. Jesse Ginsberg is a sensory integration trained speech and language pathologist and CEO of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse, a top rated clinic in Los Angeles. And through her international publications and talks and her global Inside Out Sensory Certificate program, Jessie inspires a new way of thinking about the speech and language pathologist's role in supporting autistic children. And Chris Wenger is an enthusiastic school-based SLP, internationally acclaimed presenter and creator of the Dynamic Assessment of Social-Emotional Learning. A prominent thought leader in the field of speech pathology and known on social media as Speech Dude, Chris motivates and entertains fellow educators and clinicians and parents like me through his humorous and inspiring posts and videos. Now, I want you to listen for the reasons Jesse and Chris lay out why we need to move away from functioning labels like high and low functioning autism and why they're really harmful instead of helpful. And this is a great follow-up to this point in my previous conversation with Eric Garcia in episode 76. Pay attention to how Jesse points out that we don't all do things the same way. Imagine that, right? Why it is so important that we don't put our own expectations on others. And notice when Chris points out how we have a toxic system built on placating complaints instead of validating someone's authentic way of living and being. Now you're in for a treat, y'all. Please welcome Jesse Ginsberg and Chris Wenger to the Unburdened Leader Podcast. Jesse and Chris, welcome. Thank you. We are so excited to be here. We are ready to rock and roll. This is going to be so much fun. It is going to be so much fun. I'm going to have to actually make sure I pace myself because I could tell that we could probably ping back and forth and not stress out anyone listening. Uh, But I want to start because you both have some credentials that a lot of people outside of the world that we're in may not understand. So I thought it'd be just good to talk about what is a speech and language pathologist, and then also just talk about what got you interested in becoming an SLP. Yeah, we are both speech language pathologists. And 
Gosh, in this day, it's almost hard to define what an SLP does because the scope is so wide. So we could tell, I mean, you can work with from infants through, you know, adulthood, geriatrics, you can do swallowing, communication. But I will speak to what our specialty kind of areas are, which is we both work in pediatrics. Chris works with older students in the high school. I work with younger kids in private practice. And we both, you know, work specifically with autistic kids mainly. So that's really what our passion is. And I'll add to that too. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I just currently work in a school setting um, with teens and it's so much fun because at that age, we just connect. We they're the same level of maturity. So, <laughs> yep, I never got older than, than 18. I, uh, we have, we have the same interest in music and TV shows. So, <laughs> it's just how it works. It definitely is how it works. Um, and I, I think this is really foundational to our conversation today, too. I'd love for you to walk me through the, your own story, the two of you of meeting and growing your training business in addition to merging your families. Yeah, I know. It's funny how life works out, but. We both ended up on the California Speech Language Hearing Association board. So they have 10 people in the whole state of California. And because we lived in different cities, we were on the same board. Had we lived in the same city, you know, they take directors from different regions in California. So that's how we met was on that board. And we both had this special interest in autism and there was a convention coming up and I said, hey, we should present together. You know, we both present separately. We should present together. We both have a lot we could talk about. And then we started working on our presentation and then the pandemic mm -hmm. hit and they canceled the convention, but we kept hanging out. And now we have a baby Another, Another one coming week, weeks away from the next baby. And then we have two from my um, previous marriage. And so we're just one big blended family with soon to be four boys. So not boring, not boring at all. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to have I think that's really important. And I think it's also important to Chris, you identify as ADHD, correct? Correct. Yeah. You know, um, a long time ago through about my schools, it was ADD. Um, there was a switch, gosh, I don't know how long ago it was, but no more ADD and ADHD. So yeah, my initial um, diagnosis was ADD. And, you know, it's interesting because of my unique experiences and finding things that were difficult when I was in school are now being able to be channeled into the ways I can easily recognize and identify the supports that uh, my students currently need right now. So it's kind of done this full three, 360 of me finding out what my needs were. Still, it's funny because when I work with students, it's like everything that I'm still helping support myself with, I am guiding them with, and it's therapeutic for me. Mm -hmm. So everybody wins. That's beautiful. And I think that's also part of meaningful work where we're not only helping make an impact on the world, but we're also growing and healing ourselves. And and Jesse, I, I don't know this for sure, but my understanding is you identify as quote unquote neurotypical. 
Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I just think I want to name that too in our I conversation. Like, what does she know about me? <laughs> I've done my research. <laughs> well, I think as we're going into this conversation, and uh, I, I think it's important that, you know, you might know this disability rights mantra, nothing about us without us. And, you know, for me, I don't identify as neurodivergent. I identify as a partner to and a parent of those with neurodivergence. Um, and I want to make sure in our conversation, people are clear on where we're coming from and that there might be spaces where this conversation might be lacking. But it's this is just really a, a starter of many that I want to have. And I wanted you both on the show today because so many of my adult clients I recognize, and maybe this is just as being a parent of a child on the autism spectrum and also clinically working with those on the disordered eating spectrum where a lot of sensory issues are very present. So it felt very normal to me, but I'm realizing in the rest of the world, we pathologized and judged and shamed this. And I'm realizing, wow, maybe we have this backwards on how we're looking at these struggles. And so I really am excited to dive deeper into that. But first, I, I want to go back high on a higher level too on kind of some names and acronyms and labels. I thought this might be a good way to te- you know, dig in. Um, a lot of this is a lot of these terms and phrases are used in education, mental health and medical spaces. So I'm just going to say these terms and I'll let you all kind of freestyle. So s- what is sensory integration and stimming? Okay. So it's fun. When you say freestyle, you, he, Chris might actually freestyle for you if you if you tell him to freestyle. <laughs> No. <laughs> I love it. So sensory integration. First of all, there this is something that I think is really can be really misunderstood because sensory integration is an actual type of approach or a type of therapy. Mm. And that is something I've gone to school for to get that training in. But it's also, you know, a phrase, which means being able to integrate all of the senses around us and take that in and make sense of them. So generally, I think when people talk about sensory integration, they're talking about their body's ability to take in all of the senses around them and integrate that into their, into their body, make sense of it. And, you know, stimming is, gosh, you want to you wanna talk about stimming? And so stimming is actually short for stimulation. So self-stimulation. Everybody has their own unique ways of keeping their bodies regulated. Maybe it's through tapping the foot. For me, it's, you know, moving my foot or constantly moving at all times, twirling my pen. <laughs> it's probably why you've noticed me moving so much, but that's what helps me stay focused. That's what helps me and my body stay regulated. So when we hear stimming, that can mean a lot of things when we work with or when we see stimming in neurodivergent people and autistic people, um, that might present itself um you know, through a variety of different senses. So we might see that with um, a lot more hand movements, body movements. Um, Stimming can come in the form of a visual stimming as well. So for example, I was working with some of my students um, earlier and we just went up on YouTube. You could type in kaleidoscope and you could get a visual stim just by staring at a kaleidoscope with a repetitive sound. And that's very soothing. It's really important to know, too, because identifying and and understanding that stimming causes a purpose for a healthy purpose, we can better understand and meet the needs of the clients we work with. Oftentimes and historically, stimming has been viewed from the outside looking in as something that was negative. So 
there's been goals and a push towards suppressing stimming. And all that does is create and externalize other problems. So coming from an angle of saying, hey, you know what? Stimming's a good thing. Let's help support that. How can we do it in a healthy way? Um, you know, through providing fidgets or movement or just a variety of things. So um, I th- did I cover that pretty good, Jesse? No, that was pretty good. <laughs> the main thing, you know, to take away is that it's not something that we want to try to eliminate or minimize in our kids. It's something that we want to support them being able to stim in any way that they need to so that they can help regulate mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and I appreciate that because my daughter, one of the ways that she regulates is walking and talking to herself. And so we've had to, you know, help educate her fellow classmates and her educators that that she's not being disruptive. She's not being disrespectful. In fact, actually, the way her brain is wired, she's actually hearing what the teacher's sharing while she's working through it, which for those of us who don't relate to that may think, oh, she's just being disrespectful or we need to get them to sit on their desk and be still when actually the exact opposite would help their education. This is actually helping her learn and regulate. And so it really has been an interesting, and I think about not just education, but in all spaces of what people need. But there's this sense, at least in my age, that you're supposed to sit down, be still, not move. That's quote unquote good, right? So yeah, anything else you want to share on that? I would say that um, what you just described is exactly um, the type of way we describe it in meetings and the way we can write it in our reports as well, because um, every so often I'll come by reports that will state that the child or the client or the student was up out of their seat moving or they came into the office um, not paying attention. And the truth of the matter is we can reframe that language by stating um, client walked in or student walked into the office and preferred to stand during observations or during assessments as their way of learning. Um, They were focused by X, Y, and Z. So that way we're framing it in a strengths-based approach rather than coming at an an angle of looking at it as if it's a deficit, trying to get away from um, that type of, of language. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that because, yeah, it's really something that a neurotypical might view if they didn't have the knowledge as why is this person walking around my therapy office? Why is this student in class not staying seated during circle time for reading? And it's like, okay, well, if we have the why, then we can help support the needs so everybody gets an equal opportunity to learn. Absolutely. I think I've just come to this being a broad statement, but I don't believe that kids are broken or humans are broken, but our way of looking at ability and health and success is, and we have to up our capacity for our ability. You know, if we're, if we're an educator for me as a, as a psychotherapist or a leadership coach, what are the environments that I'm creating and how am I getting curious about that? And it's, it teasing out my own ableism has been a painful and humbling process, particularly around neurodivergence, because it's not so obviously seen. Um, Maybe, I don't know if it's because of that, but maybe just because I'm a parent and I'm realizing, holy cow, how much we breathe that in. I want to move on to another term uh, that I'm newer to, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts because I've seen you write and share about this called persistent drive for autonomy. And an old way of saying it was pathological demand avoidant, which of course is so like DSME, but persistent drive for autonomy. I know it's a term that started getting its legs out in the UK and it's slowly making its way here. And I love to hear you both talk about 
what this is and how you approach it, not only in those that you serve, but in the educators and the families you work with. Yeah, this was something that it's funny because we started talking about it on social media and it triggered all of these conversations. It was like so many people and autistic colleagues of ours, you know, writing, that's me and that this makes so much sense or that's my child. This explains everything. And, you know, like you said, I like that as an adjective, DSME. I think we need to start yeah. using that. <laughs> I love that. Um, because it's, you know, known by most people as pathological demand avoidance, but a more affirming way to say it would be persistent drive for autonomy. Chris taught me that. I'll give him a little credit for that. But oh, it's, essentially, <laughs> it's essentially, you know, um, someone shutting down when demands are placed on them. And it's not a conscious, purposeful, intentional shutdown. It's a stress response. And you probably have a lot of research under your belt under on that, too. But it's been really interesting to learn more about it and how much we see how often we see autistic kids who are showing PDA, or we might call them PDAers if they identify that way. But it's just, it really completely changes your approach, especially as a speech pathologist, because as a speech pathologist, you are trained to ask questions, give directions, make them follow all these kinds of commands. And it like flips your therapy on its head because you realize that the more I do those things, the less productive this is going to be the more emotionally damaging this is going to be for this child over time. So it's really about how can I create more autonomy for my clients? You know, how can I give them more of a choice on what we do? And, and you know, it's, yeah, there's a ton of treatment strategies. We did a whole episode on that. Well, I'll make sure to link to that episode. Anything you want to add to that, Chris? Um, now that we kind of have an idea of what it is, um, when we do see that um, persistent drive for autonomy, it's a matter of seeing how we can meet the client and student where they're at so we can best support them. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking about some strat some strategies on that. One thing that I have found to be helpful is to tie in humor. Another thing is limit questions because I yes. think sometimes we always feel like we want this myriad of questions being thrown at somebody like, a whole list of them. And all that does is it just ends up shutting someone down. So, um, you know, providing choices and things, uh, identifying in which environments and settings are, do they feel safe and comfortable and successful in, and then identifying which environments do they feel unsafe in and where that might be taking place and, um, and really guiding our approaches through that, uh, in insight as well is really helpful. And I just read a pretty well-known book called PDA by PDAers. Oh, and wow. it's all stories of PDAers. And it's kind of like a conversation of people sharing how it affected them throughout their life. And it's just in so many different ways. I mean, it could be from someone saying, I've been walking past the same dirty sock on the ground for months because I cannot get myself to pick it up. It stresses me out too much to think about it to I, I, um, you know, every job I have, I enjoy it for six months. But after that, it starts to feel like it's the same thing every day with the same demands and I can't do it anymore and I have to switch. Um, it could be 
like just looking at, you know, the way some people have described it as looking at a task that may seem so small to someone else, but to them, it really feels like such a mountain. A huge mental load. And I thank you for unpacking that because I think I hear from a lot of folks, whether they're leaders to parents saying, aren't they just trying to get what they want when they want it? And don't they just need to develop, you know, their emotional literacy? And don't they, you know, and you know what they they need to adult better. And I hear some of this stuff about, you know, conforming, but these often explosive responses from some of the things that you just described feels a lot from the outside in that we can often judge or criticize and we lose our curiosity around that. So I'm excited about this particular phenomenon to get some more language. Are there anything like what have you heard from the teachers, educators or the families you work with who have are, are teaching or parenting kids that are, are, you know, in that space of PDA? I mean, I think that you hear of the challenges like that's what we hear a lot. You know, we hear parents say, well, I wish they didn't have to take a bath, you know, but that's just something that they have to do as part of something that is, you know, for their sanitation purposes or, um, well, they have to learn in school. So, I mean, it just kind of opens a can of worms because that's a way bigger conversation, obviously, about why aren't we teaching kids the way they learn instead of trying to teach all kids in the same way, you know? Mm -hmm. And Chris and I could talk all day about autonomy and intrinsic motivation because that's something we so strongly believe in is that kids... Like, how do we get them intrinsically motivated? And a lot of the times, and I think that we almost put the onus on the child, like, well, he's not motivated. It's like, well, you're doing this in a way that's so boring for them or so mundane or you're putting so many demands on them. Of course, he's not motivated, you know, and we think about it with our own kids. You know, it's instead of go brush your teeth in our house, we have a dragon, Pete, or Elliot, who's the dragon? The dragon's El- Elliot. Yeah, Pete is the boy. You know, Pete the drag, Pete's dragon, whatever. <laughs> I don't. It's a movie from beyond my before my time, but this was a Chris thing. But we introduced our kids to this imaginary dragon. And we brush his teeth at night, and it makes brushing teeth more fun. So you know, as much as the, it's kind of like the double side of the coin of well. How can we get kids to do the things they really need to do? But also, is there a way that we can make it more fun and more motivating for them? And the more we can give kids autonomy, the more motivated they're going to do, they're going to be to do it. I have a PDA I work with who was given an English assignment where they had to um, pull and make up a quote from a book they were reading, um, uh, Lord of the Flies. And when the teacher placed the demand, um, that was like an automatic response. He didn't want to do it for whatever reason. It was that hurdle. So she gave him some options um, with how he can present it through Google Slide, through making a collage, whatever it was, um, to help support him. So, I mean, it's just kind of really being creative with some ideas as well and and offering choices. Um, This particular student, when it came to tasks, in most situations has a heightened anxiety, like a lot of anxiety. And there's something called rejection sensitive dysphoria that ties directly into this because um, what that is, is it's this feeling of heightened stress when you feel like you might fail at something. And so then it come, then it becomes working with supporting the 
ability to decrease our stress um, and then coming up with with ways to really help um, keep this student regulated because when a task is placed on him that um, his brain gets into that panic or freeze mode, no learning is taking place. And it's like, you know, you can go walking through a forest and if you see a bear come at you and you go running, if somebody yells at you, hey, Chris, you know, what's eight times seven? My brain ain't going to be able to tell you the answer. My brain is in fight, flight, freeze, or, you know, I'm in a, I'm in panic or freeze mode. So it's the same type of concept too, of how can we best help keep, um, work with strategies so our clients can stay regulated and, and, and yeah. So learning about these things has been really, um, supportive. You know, I'll tell you this too. You'll see in reports and you'll hear from teachers sometimes, it's like this student's unmotivated, this student's lazy, this student just hates everybody, whatever it is. It's like, no, that's not what it is. If we can really do a deep dive, if we put on our scuba gear and we dive into the uh, <laughs> the prefrontal cortex, we can really see what's going on. And I think the, that really helps out. Yeah, the, the brain and the whole body, the whole nervous system. Absolutely. Yeah, the body, mind, the whole, everything. Yeah, and I... And I think these questions and curiosities, it kind of goes both hand to be or, uh, two, twofold in the sense of we want to empower people to to speak up and advocate saying this isn't working. And 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 for those of us getting that feedback to normalize that and stay curious, you know, and it's, I just see these broad sweeps. They're being lazy. They're entitled. They're spoiled. You know, and it doesn't mean like I mean, every you know, there isn't some things that need to be addressed in there. But it is amazing how how we are taught in all of our different professions is not affirming to folks who experience the world differently uh, than those who, again, identify. I don't like the term neurotypical because I'm kind of, honestly, is that typical or is really neurodivergent neurotypical? I, I don't know. I'm in this interesting existential crisis about <laughs> this. But you know, I just think it's this. And then this part of like, how am I leading? How am I teaching? How am I working? How am I, where am I staying curious versus this is how it should be? You know, again, ableism is insidious and this sense of understanding. Yeah. And it's easy. Oh, there's always a label for everything these days. Everyone has a reason to tap out of doing the work. Yeah. Um, going back on that whole topic too, I think I, I get comments um, on social media every so often about, well, isn't, isn't everybody neurodivergent? And so just to define that, it's, the majority of people are neurotypical. Neurodivergent would be somebody who has a disability that prevents them from doing something. So with both of those together, we have a neurodiverse world. So that includes everybody. But neurodivergent is a smaller um umbrella that includes the um, disability such as bipolar, OCD, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, dyslexia, ADHD, autism. So that's the actual neurodivergent element to to that. But yeah, the whole the whole world is neurodiverse, but there's a big distinction between neurotypical and neurodivergent mm -hmm. because there's a there's a significantly larger amount of neurotypicals which make up the neuro majority. I love it. Thank you so much for naming that, which makes moves me to another question that I'll be honest, even in writing these questions, I was getting teary-eyed because <laughs> I just realized how much it was healing to me to see the content that you all, I'm even getting tender right now, um, the content you put there because it's really lonely 
um, whether it's a parent or someone who's um, wrestling with these issues. And one of the things that hit home was the functioning labels, addressing the functioning labels of mild or severe. I, I mean, and person in particular around autism. And I'd love for you to comment on those functioning labels and why you believe they're not helpful and in fact may be really dangerous. Yeah, we're glad you asked because I don't know. This is such a sensitive topic. It's just people get really set in their own ways. They don't want to change. They don't want to listen to the people with the lived experience. In other words, the autistic community who's who are the ones telling us don't use these labels. And um, and, you know, it's just every time we post about it, we get so much pushback from people saying, well, what am I supposed to say? You know, and it's like, well, just tell us about the kid. Describe the kid. We don't have to just put a blanket label as mild or severe. But, you know, the concept is that people have this idea that the autism spectrum is linear and it goes from mild to severe. They could be less autistic or they could be more autistic. But the reality is that, you know, you can think of the spectrum as more of a circle with many skills under it. And kids may have really strong skills in some areas and may need a really high level of support in other areas. So, you know, it can be harmful using those labels. Either I'll talk about low, you can talk about high. Like a cute couple. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the reason why it's harmful to call a child severely autistic or low functioning is because Essentially, we are saying this child has no skills in any area. This kid, nothing will ever come of his life. We have no hopes for this child. I mean, it's essentially like we hear non-speaking adults say these things about that's how people felt about them when they were younger. So, you know, you hear people saying we need to presume competence. And it's so unfortunate that so often with non-speaking kids and they might communicate with in other ways like a device with pictures through gestures words anything um but when we don't when we call them severely autistic we're not presuming that they are competent and that is going to affect our expectations of them it's going to affect how we treat them it's going to affect the approaches we create for them it's going to affect how people perceive that child and then most importantly, it will affect the way that child perceives themselves. So lots of reasons to avoid severe. Yeah. And, um, you know, in my setting in the schools on IEPs, if um, if a functioning label is used like that, usually that would drive the goals. And so, you know, if someone says, yeah, this student's severe or this student's low functioning, then that presumes the student doesn't have the capacity to think on their own. It really just takes away from the the, the dignity of the person and the who the person is. Um, and so, yeah, as Jesse was saying, you just describe what what the needs are. This person is a non-speaking person who um, has extreme distress in situations that are really loud with a lot of people, so on and so forth. Um, the opposite end of that too, which we historically have heard, um, is high functioning. And so um, high functioning doesn't really paint a picture for people of what the true needs are. So when 
in my setting, you hear high functioning, it automatically presumes that the student doesn't need any support because they're high functioning. It's like, well, let's describe what the profile really is. This student can communicate with, and they, they have a few friends to hang out with, but when there are too many tasks and there's too many loud sounds, their body goes into extreme distress and they have a meltdown or they have a shutdown and they can't communicate or whatever the needs might be. So that's a much better way of looking at it. Uh, the doctors right now in the DSM-5 diagnose autism, ASD, um, based on levels. So the updated terms from historically what it was, was severe or low functioning is now considered level three. High functioning would be level one. But the problem with what we have right now in the year 2023 is that levels um, can change based on anyone's needs, depending on the environment and depending on what the demands are that are placed on them. So one day a person can be a level one functioning or, or doing just fine with friends playing video games. But all of a sudden you are in a rally with 2000 people, you know, level one becomes level three real, real quickly. And so that's why that does, that system doesn't really work um, to, to describe someone, but in education, the terms that people ask me, well, how are we going to know where the student gets placed? Describe the student and that'll let us know, Hey, does this student require a classroom that has a lot fewer supports or do they need to go to a classroom that has a lot more extensive supports, such as more one-to-one aids and paraprofessionals and more visuals and more communication boards and more, uh, a smaller class size, more um, opportunities to take uh, movement breaks, all of those types of things. So, um, so yeah, slowly moving away from functioning labels is is is, is okay. neuroaffirming and the route that we want to go. Too slow, too slow in my mind. And I think there's also yeah. this piece too with the high functioning and the low functioning that we're kind of rank ordering. There's still this like insidious this oh you don't have it that bad in the sense of saying that it's still bad you know, ADHD, autism, whatever, uh, wherever the neurodivergence lands. And and so that there's almost this good, bad piece to it that I found that when I finally saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a sense of what support we're trying to get you. when We moved to low functioning and now we're high functioning and now you're fixed from what? Versus Wow, how are your grades? How is your community? How is your mental well-being? And how okay, wow, we've been really struggling in those areas and wow, you're feeling the kids feeling more or the or the adult whoever feeling more connected um and they're feeling more mastery and having some more autonomy in whatever that looks like for them, but I feel like it is so important and, and I just think so many people have internalized that who are on the autism spectrum or ADHD or you know, again, other neurodivergent struggles that they've internalized that that's bad, especially if they're severe. And so I, whether it's my daughter or others I work with have got some mad skills on masking and mad skills on like putting to the world what they want to hear and what they want to say and then coming home and collapsing, you know, right. and that's yeah. not sustainable. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, no, you nailed it. I mean, the, the disability community, um, does emphasize ableism and how ableism is very prominent in, in society. Essentially, um, to define that in simple terms for your listeners, just the idea that one particular 
group or way of being is superior than somebody else. So like racism would be that one race is superior than another. It's just like, so when we think about ableism in itself and we use terms like Asperger's or high functioning, that in itself is ableist because it's saying that one group of people is superior than the other. And that's really against what the neurodiversity movement is pushing for. So that's another really big thing too to uh, consider. Absolutely. And we're moving away from Asperger's for a good reason too, because even the, the gentleman <laughs> the named Asperger's. With, yeah, exactly. You say it. Go ahead and say it. The ties with. Yeah, I was going to say the ties. So yeah, Hans Asperger's, uh, he was just his ties with the Nazis. And um, when historically, um, from my knowledge and understanding, he the the group that he was affiliated with would only want to bring in the people they deemed as superior, though smart, well-educated, ab- more able to do something. And the children that were disabled or, you know, non-speaking or whatever it was, were harmed, killed, all sorts of bad stuff. So just the history behind that is, has been comped in terms of like, let's yeah get away from that. But yeah, I've had people reach out to me too by saying, hey, what are we just going to erase? Or is this cancer culture? It's like, no, no, we could recognize that Hans Asperger's was a dude and that there was a syndrome that was named after him. But right now we're trying to make a shift as we move forward so we can know what better ways to describe somebody. And, and that would be autistic. You're either autistic or you're not autistic. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your businesses and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you've been taught. To start the Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you.
I want to shift a little bit and talk about the stakes right now, whether it's teachers, administrators, helping professionals, leaders, parents, everyone. How? What are the stakes for all of us to adapt a more neurodivergent friendly approach to how we lead and care for those in our charge? Oh, man, I think um, this is like one of the big the hills we will die on. We talk about this all the time, which is what is our goal for our kids? You know, our goal is for them to live fulfilled, happy lives where they can be authentically who they are. You know, you ask any parent, what do you want for your kid? I want them to be happy. That's what we want. Well, then why are we promoting these practices and approaches that are creating kids who learn how to mask and then leading to mental illness? And, you know, I don't you probably he's a lot better with numbers. I feel like, you know, the depression rates and stuff probably off the top of your head. But um, gosh, yeah, you know, so um, they're 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 kind of. I don't like mentioning them all too much because they're so like depressing, but it's worth knowing. Like, let's name it. Yeah. There's different studies out there. Um, One study is that um, the autistic, an autistic person is six times more likely to have thoughts of suicide or die by suicide. There's another one out there that it's up to nine times more likely than any other subgroup in the world. Um, the average lifespan on one of the most recent things I've read was um, for an autistic person being 36. And so when you think about when you think about trauma and you think about the body and the autoimmune system over time having to endure um, that, it breaks down and it d- depression and stress and all and all of these things lead into your physical health, you know? So Knowing these numbers, it's so important because that tells us that something isn't working. Something's not right. And so um, we have the conversations with parents. But as Jesse said, which we would, you know, like, what what are like some of the goals? And what we hear often, the three things that I hear most is that a parent says, well, I want my child to be as independent as possible. And if they can't be independent, then at least be codependent and be able to have somebody to connect with, right? I get that. And that um and the second one is they want like I want as they get older to be happy, right? So so independent, happy. And then the third thing they want is at least one person to connect with. Doesn't have to have five, 10, 15, 20 friends, but one person. So when they exit out of the school system, those three things are there. So then the question, the conversation um that we have is okay. What are we looking at and how do we want to get there? And when we hear things such as a compliance-based approach, an approach where it's built on rewards and punishments, where we're trying to get an autistic student to do something, to earn something, or we are teaching them to hide their true identity, to hide their characteristics, or to be less autistic, that ends up being counterproductive for the end result for both of us. And if that's the case, then we really have to have these solid and honest conversations of, okay, we need to go down a path so we can meet those three things in a healthy way. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's really how we have that. That's really how we drive the push with teachers, parents, educators, 
the education system, seeing it from that view, because, you know, we, we have had a, a, a toxic system that has been built on complaints and, um, mm-hmm. and not validating someone for their true, authentic, essential self really creates someone feeling like they have to live an inauthentic life in order to survive a neurotypical world. That doesn't work. And that's just unfortunately how so many, so much therapy is set up because therapists who aren't, you know, so familiar with the neurodiversity affirming practices, they hear a parent say, I want him to have friends. So what do we do? We throw him into a social skills group. We teach him how to make eye contact. We teach him how to face their body in the right direction. We, um, oh my God, I can think back in my career when I used to do this, you know, because I think we all did. And I would like, hold up cue cards to tell them when they should comment versus when they should ask a question. And all we're doing is teaching them to mask. All we're doing is teaching them neurotypical communication styles. So then they are working on the same goals year after year and they graduate and they move on to not actually have any true friendships because we haven't done anything to facilitate more natural friendships. And, you know, that's something where we talk about a lot is how can we get our kids more connected with kids they share interests with. And just yesterday I was consulting with a parent and her her kid's only in kindergarten. But she said the teacher wants him to, you know, talk about whatever his friends want to talk about. But he is just not interested. He only likes talking about space and the planets and There was something else, but I was like, well, you know, it'd be really cool is if we could find other kids who really love talking about space, too. And hello, because then I was like, you're not going to have to try that friendship's going to come naturally for him. What you're all sharing is bring me back to one of many IEP meetings. And for those who don't know what IEP is, it's individual education plan and it's a legal document that is created and attached to a kid to help ensure um, they have some legal rights to various supports, and it tracks all the different helps they have. And it's a whole big, fat paper trail. <laughs> Thank God it's now digitally now. I have so many yeah. stacks of paper. But I was at an IEP meeting, um, and I'm realizing that some of these wonderful folks were setting goals because they felt bad. They were like, they wanted to do something. And I had to say, stop. We don't have to have everyone be best friends with my kid. I want my daughter. And and I know happiness is a common one for me. And maybe this is just a casualty of being a trauma therapist. But my number one job is like, I want her to be safe. I want her to be safe. I don't want her to be bullied. But she may, someone may just walk away from her. They may roll eyes. They may la- point and laugh a little bit. You know, they that's life. And that's not something I want. But I said, I want her to be safe. I want her to learn. And I want her to know who she is and not be ashamed of it. And so it was like, I remember this, it got really quiet in the room. Our job isn't to make sure everyone likes her and and she's likable to everybody. We don't do this to everybody. And it was almost this like collective exhale. But I'm like, you know, if she's learning, if she's connecting in some way that's meaningful to her, we're not putting our stuff on her. And I think that's something I see a lot to what we think others should do because we you know they cared. I they genuinely were caring and they saw like, oh, maybe some kids were you know, turning away and not turning towards her. And then they thought, oh, I need to get another goal to help her so she doesn't go through that. But I'm like, we experience rejection. That's kind of part of, that's, that sucks. We experience heartache. We are misunderstood. If that can happen in a framework 
where someone's not dehumanized and not bullied, okay, this is how we grow and learn. You know, and so I just am thinking about that, even setting those goals or how we want someone else to change because it hurts us to see them struggle. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything you want to share or follow up to that. Yeah. I mean, because we put our own, you know, what makes us happy or what we want out of our life is not what everyone else wants out of it. And not to say everyone doesn't want to be connected. That's obviously a huge misconception about autism is that autistic yep. kids don't want friends. But, you know, um, <laughs> We could, we we don't all want the same things in life and we don't all want to do the things the same way. So we don't need to put our own expectations on other people. And um, what's something that's really cool, Chris created an assessment to use with kids where you can actually go through and ask them questions. So I've had this conversation with kids in my clinic, you know, he designed it for middle high school. I've used it for kids even like six, seven, eight, nine, ten where you talk to them about what do you want in a friendship? Like, do you want someone who you're seeing every single day after school? Do you want someone to just hang out with sometimes? Do you want someone to hang out with at school? You know, do you want someone to share your feelings with? Do you want someone who shares the same interests as you? And um, it was so revolutionary. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and what is the like, assessment on? Let me just jump in. What is this assessment for and on? Yeah, so it's a neurodiversity affirming approach to gathering information um, what, for assessments. And so um, what it does, because here's what typically happens, is that formal standardized assessments are normed on non-autistic individuals, so on neurotypicals, right? We always will see, no matter if it comes from the psych reports or the speech reports, a profile that'll be spiky, Right. But it never actually gets the information that we need in real time. What's going on at home beyond the school walls? What's going on in the student's mind? What's going on in the classes? So it's got a variety of forms that ask the right questions. So one goes to the teacher. They can go to the paraprofessional. One form is a different form that goes to the parent. One form um, goes to the student that they fill out. And then there's an observation form. But it's all done being mindful of the differences in characteristics. So so it's called the it. dynamic assessment of social emotional learning, the DASL. Mm, the DASL. But, you know, we started using this in our clinic. And it's like, who would have thought? Let's actually ask the kids what they want instead of just assuming that we know what they want. So it's <laughs> been Imagine really that. cool because it's facilitated a lot of conversation with kids that we just wouldn't otherwise have even thought to have. Oh, I want to get it. I want to connect with you on it because uh, my husband is a 25 year veteran educator who just took a promotion as an assistant principal in a middle school. So I want to I definitely want to connect him with that. I think he'd be all over getting. That, oh, the I'm word telling you, that. it's 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 awesome because that's what because if we're only using scores from standard or formal assessments, then that's going to be what's in the report. And what's ever in the report is going to drive the therapy approach and the goals. So we're driving the wrong outcomes. So that's why it's so critical Ooh. to make sure we gather data that's accurate and neuroaffirming. And yes, that that's why I created it because there was nothing out there. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm actually, Chris, thinking you're onto something because you could adapt that for leaders to use in different communities, whether it's businesses, you know, faith communities, 
um, higher, you know, higher level school, like, you know, college and beyond, just any different space to start. How do we hear from the folks that we, we want to bring more people to the table and have more folks and not be as, what do we have to do? Well, we ask, <laughs> how do we create a space where they can thrive and function? Um, we ask. And so I think you're out of something that could be adapted for other environments too. So just a, a nudge there because I know Here a lot of people go. would Future be. Future New York Times bestseller. <laughs> I was going to say, he's going to need earmuffs. He's going to need earmuffs for that one because you tell his ADHD brain something and he's going to go in 50 different ways with it. Yeah, got 50 well, ideas right now. <laughs> you, know where, you know where to find me. So I, this, this leads to my next question though. Um, and I'd love to hear some practical ways of how can neurotypical leaders practically create spaces that are more affirming and welcoming to those with differences. I think that something that was so game-changing for us was when we learned about the double empathy problem, which is essentially saying that Mm. perspective-taking goes both ways, right? So right now, we put an autistic student with a non-autistic student, and the autistic student is expected to make the non-autistic student feel more comfortable. They're expected to be the one to change to fit in, right? So we're only taking into account the neurotypical perspective there. But what we need is more education on what is the autistic experience like and what are, you know, communication differences that we might see, what are social differences what that we might see, what are sensory differences we might see so that, the neurotypical can understand the autistic perspective, you know? So I think that like the more we talk about that, the more it helps people to understand. And, you know, again, like these are conversations I have with parents who have kids who are five, six years old of what is their communication style? And maybe they like to info dump. Maybe they like to talk about a specific topic at length and that's how they share something special with you. Whereas, you know, the next person is going to talk about the weather and then whatever you say. Right. What's going on with Kim Kardashian and what's going on Mm. then with uh, there's an earthquake the other morning. Right. Like the neurotypical chit chat may not feel natural and meaningful to an autistic person. But then it's like the info dumping type of style may not feel meaningful to the neurotypical person. So understanding that perspectives go both ways. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm going to add to that too. Um, Yeah. Because definitely I think education and coming from an understanding of the differences, but I also um, think that a push for um, UDL, which stands for Universal Design for Learning. Um, And so schools are trying to push this more. It's been around for quite some time really not coming from a one-size-fits-all package. This really concept started back in World War II where um, fighter fighter pilots, there was one cockpit that had a seat that would only fit one size person, um, <laughs> certain height person. Um, and so they said, you know what? If we really want to get more fighter pilots out there to be part of this, we're going to have to reconsider these seats and make them adjustable and make them to where we can get more options, a variety of people fighting for us to win this thing. Mm -hmm. And that really set the concept of 
um, having a classroom where there are multiple modalities and approaches um, of ways of learning. So providing more visual supports in class, providing opportunities to stand while learning, providing opportunities for preferential seating and being um, aware that there might be loud sounds and um, building an environment of accommodations and um, giving options. So rather than just saying, hey, this is the one way you're going to learn, coming at it by saying, well, here's some options of you guys completing these projects and we're really going to make it uh, um, diverse for everyone to be able to meet their needs. To answer your question, as neurotypical leaders, creating spaces and environments where everybody has access. That's yeah. like my short answer. And I think so much comes down to, and I preach this all day, obviously, and I'm talking to the right person, but it all comes down to, you know, regulation, sensory and emotional regulation. And do they feel safe? And is, are they going to be able to access the parts of their brain needed for learning in this environment? And for a lot of our kids, like you touched on earlier, they're holding it in all day. They're fighting their bodies all day. And then they're coming home and they're melting down and then they're getting, becoming traumatized because of it. And then it's just going every single day until they're 35 and go, man, I should probably get assessed or something because this doesn't feel like it should be something that I'm going through every day. And that's literally the story of one of our friends who got a diagnosis at 35, you know, but it's exactly what Chris is talking about, really understanding and accepting that we all don't have to have the same needs and just being able to model that type of acceptance. Yeah. And, and again, the stakes are high and it's it's it literally it's saving lives and livelihoods and well-being. And, we you know, and it really is if we want to be welcoming and it's super humbling for those of us, and I'm pointing at myself, who haven't had to do that. You know, I, you know, I can move through spaces and navigate a whole lot of things. And, um, and one of the things that I think I annoy everyone that has, <laughs> maybe I don't annoy them, maybe I activate them, who works with my daughter is, is, I don't think she needs to change. I think everyone else, I think we need to change how we're supporting her. And, and it's like you could just see them kind of fritzing because they're so burdened. They're holding a lot. They're, it's hard to be an educator or, you know, for like you're you know doing the work that you will do. I have compassion for it immensely. But I'm like, no, we're not going to try and change my daughter. We're going to change how we're approaching this. And that is a lot more work and is overwhelming. Um, but I think that's just really where it starts and not putting on the burden on everyone. It's like those of, for me, it's like part of my role is to start to stay curious and advocate. So it's not all on folks like my daughter to have to advocate that we need to create spaces and have an expectation that we're advocating for everybody. And I appreciate that so much of what you do. And on that note, then I'm curious how you both view success, especially in the context of your work. What does success look like to you today? And how is it different from what you were taught? Oh, how what we were taught success is. I don't know, probably making money, <laughs> right? <laughs> like what you learn. I think um, for me, it's just, it's so much more now about impact. And it's not something I ever thought about until I started doing this because 
And it's it's really nice not to say like, I, I don't need constant validation on social media or anything, but it's really nice sometimes because we get so caught up in the day to day. We're like trying to train people and put out content and teach and educate the world. And it's really nice sometimes to just hear someone say like that post you wrote on this completely changed my life. And I just wanted to let you know, you know, and um, like I just got off of a training I did today for parents, like a free training for them. And they're pa- it's all over the world. There were probably families from like 30 countries on that call. So I think for me, you know, being able to have that kind of global impact has felt like success. And then Mm. more specifically, the stories that we get to hear of, you know, every kid matters to us. As cheesy as that sounds or hormonal as I am talking about this. (laughs) But um, it's really like comes down to every single child and you hear one success story and it's like, we don't forget those. Mm. How about you, Chris? Gosh, that my brain goes in like 5 million directions. And so um, I guess reflecting back on the conversation we've had, success for me is understanding that my brain was designed to work the way it was designed for me. And it's okay to ask for help and supports and come to terms with understanding Um, those things so I can live my true, authentic, essential life. That's success to me um, Mm. after this conversation. What were you originally taught about success and how does that differ from what you just said? You know, I I was originally taught the way we're currently taught, (laughs) the way social media portrays itself based on the algorithm. We're taught to change who we are. We're we're taught to um, be like the people that pop up on our feeds with, you know, success and money and yachts. And I'm okay with being on a kayak, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I'm okay with what I got because, um, and because that's the definition of gratitude, not constantly trying to seek fame and fortune, but trying to seek a life that uh, serves the community and helps others while also acknowledging who I am and um, being grateful in the present moment. And um, mm. and I think all of those things have tied in because um, we as a society are taught what success looks like, going and getting in a relationship and having kids and this and that, when the reality is it's like success looks different between each individual. And yes. And I wish we knew that as a society, like, honestly. I'd love to wrap up with some fun, quick fire questions. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. What are you both reading right now? I am right now. I'm reading What Happened to You, which you probably read by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. That's my read right now. I journeyed on to my most recent one from um, Gabor Mate with by the myth of normal but now currently I have reflected back on a book I read several years ago called are you fully charged by Tom Rath and what I have found is for my own oh. growth and um, successes I or not success but my own growth is to reflect back on the books I used to love and read them again because they have new meaning so 
Right now I'm reading Ooh. that. I'm like, oh, I got something new out of this. This is great. I'm energized. That's a great one. Nice. It is. Are isn't you it great? Like, life-changing book. It is one. a life-changing book. So yeah. much so that actually this is my third time reading it. And it's it. short, right? Ish. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not short, dense. easy to read. Easy read and just like powerful. Nice. What song are you both playing on repeat? Oh, right now, um, I am listening to, <laughs> I'm just going to say what was just on. I listen to it a lot. Um, Zach Brown Band, the new album, like song track one. Wild Palomino. It's, I just mm-hmm. love that song. That's funny because mine, I've just been on the country playlist repeat to whatever yeah, country. We like country. Well, we like everything, but country is like a default for us. Yep. Best TV show or movie you have seen recently? Chris only falls asleep in TV shows and movies, so this isn't a good question for him. No, I got a great one. I was going to say Blackbird. Oh, that was pretty good. Yeah, it did. It is about really murder, good. and it did give me nightmares, but it was really good. And it, was, it gave me watch. nightmares, but it was good. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, that's Chris. A great one, <laughs> Jesse and I. So my my favorite, most recent movie was a documentary with Jonah Hill and his therapist. Mm. It was called Stutz. It's on Netflix, and so it just good. Um, shows the interaction between therapist client and it's fantastic oh it was, it was really good fantastic we were surprised by how good it was yeah a lot of people have been impacted by that uh, so i appreciate that this may be tricky depending i don't, I don't know jesse if you're into 80s pop culture but what is your favorite 80s movie or 80s piece of pop culture what comes to me although i was born in the 80s you have a little more life experience than mm-hmm. i do i do is Teen Witch. That's an 80s thing, isn't it? I don't it's know. It's where she's 16 and she gets her witch powers. Oh, yes. And I think then you're she right. there's a later. lot of singing and dancing and Dean Jackets and bedazzling. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Chris? Every night I tell her, please let me watch an 80s movie and I never get an opportunity to. So this is my favorite question because I've been trying to get her to watch movies like The Great Outdoors with John Candy Oh my gosh. Um, you know, all of the vacations, but I will really want her to watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Like, those are my, that's my jam. He does. He does Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin. And I'm like, can we watch something for this decade? <laughs> no, she doesn't understand. Those movies, not only are they classics, but they're just, there's just something about them. And I just, the humor and the, the way they were set up back then was, that was the deal. That was the ticket. Of my era. <laughs> I, I thought you were, I wasn't sure if you're going to say Caddyshack because most of my guy buddies like had that movie memorized. But so many of, the, so many of those movies were like, do not age well. They do not <laughs> age well <laughs> today. We'll just leave it there. Though. Yeah, Caddyshack is still streaming. And uh, anything with Rod, Rodney Dangerfield is, is, a, is a definite must. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, <laughs> what... <laughs> I know I'm editing myself. I was like, but it's like this reminds me of just the shows that my again, most of my male identifying friends growing <laughs> up loved all of your movies. So I watched them by de- your favorites uh, by default <laughs> if I was with them. And I got them to watch the John Hughes movies um that I love so much. What is your mantra right now? Someone asked me this today. Actually, I was on I'm in this program. It's like almost a life coaching program, a weekly thing. And um I heard a good podcast episode recently about I can have it all because it's this idea that as a working 
mom, you know, you can't have it all and you have to pick and choose. So my my new mantra is I can have it all. I like that mm-hmm. mantra. I am. You said mantra right now. And I, again, I'm going to have to go with our discussion on the show. So I'm going to come up with my own mantra right now. You had mentioned earlier about the, you know, bullying and and and, and just sometimes, you know, people aren't going to like us for certain things. And so my mantra right now that I would uh, tell myself as well as extend it to others is not everyone is going to like you. And it's not a reflection of how likable I am. Boom. And that's a really important mantra. Um, that absolutely. Down. That's well, you. I'll, that's one to write down. That is one to make a brain tattoo because I think so <laughs> often, <laughs> so often we get to a point in our lives where we want to please everybody and we want everyone to like us, and in doing that, it creates uh, our own downfall sometimes in our own self-conscious thoughts and. I, you know what? I have to get out of that mindset that not everybody's going to like me. <laughs> well, this may even blend with it, but what's an unpopular opinion that you hold? That is so hard because I feel like everything we say is unpopular. I feel like we get so attacked all the time by so many of the, the things mm-hmm. we say. <laughs> right? Because it's not that it's it's not that it should be unpopular. It's just that people aren't talking about these things and we're trying to get people to talk about these things, you know? Mine is so abstract because oh God, you just got me thinking about something that happened recently, but um, it's totally off the wall here. But the somebody, it was recently on social media, but it, and I don't think it would be an unpopular opinion, but it was this discussion of, food rewards being used so heavily with certain approaches. And I say no to all of it. And then someone had, you know, reached out and said, yeah, but um, this is how I get my child to be potty trained is by giving a reward of gummy bears. And, you know, I know that would be an unpopular opinion, but I just, uh, I'm like, I don't know if I would attach a food reward to the potty training thing. Oh, Maybe. that's so common. You probably don't it, know that because you've never potty trained a child yet. I have not, but <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that maybe the potty training stages would of that, because she's right, Jesse's right, I don't have that lived experience, but, you know, attach, getting a favorite watch of Paw Patrol bubble guppies or whatever so we can work on a time, working maybe on when the potty training's happening, we we play a favorite song from the movie Frozen or whatever it is, or you have their favorite scent. Or book. Be, and or then something. it's like, hey, yeah. once you go potty, you get to hold this, you get to spray. So we're attaching a an intrinsic motivator and uh, rather than um, an, a, a food reward because I was thinking about it. If, if I was that child, and again, I haven't done potty trainings. I'm only speaking about what goes on in my mind. If... <laughs> I got rewarded with a gummy bear and I was in the daytime. I went in my pants. I would feel pretty disappointed in myself because there's no food reward. It just has to create this internal I thought you were going to say you would go to the bathroom every five minutes. I mean, I would be doing it for the wrong reasons. And then there's the the kids sometimes they just, I don't know. It just, that's a good one though. Cause I think it's an unpopular opinion probably. um, And something we do talk a lot about not using any reward system right that is definitely i would say unpopular but not because it's 
bad, but because it's people think it makes their lives harder when we get rid of reward systems. So there's our um, mm. opinion together collaboratively. Yes. The and I'll check in with you, Chris, when you are potty training your son, that you're going to try all those amazing ideas like <laughs> I did. And then I'm diving. I, do, I dove for the gummy bears. So I just want to say, because oh, at some point, I need to move on. Yeah, I need. No, I get my, it. So, but I, I hear you. But theoretically, I, generally, I definitely get what you're saying. And then uh, last but not least, who or what inspires you to be a better leader in human? My personal one individual that inspires me, you already know what I'm going to say, probably. Robin Sharma is his name. He's a the author of the 5 a.m. Club. And he's got a mm. book called The Everyday Hero Manifesto and some online courses. But certain people can say the same message and it doesn't, it might resonate with, with the person differently. So his content is similar to some of the other um, guys like Lewis Howes and um Tom Bilyeu and Tony Robbins and Ed Milet and um, but for whatever reason, Robin Sharma is like the dude that I just go, boom, right there. That's what I love. Yeah. Speaking of um, being liked by everyone, Robin Sharma says you can either change the world or you can be liked by everyone, but you can't have both. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. That's what we tell ourselves when people are attacking if us. If that is not one of the best quotes right there. Yeah then I don't know what is. Okay, mine is random. This is just what came to me, which is on the front of being a mom who also runs businesses. I will say Sarah Blakely, very successful company while parenting four kids. Yep. And then her husband is very, very similar to Chris with their cold plunges and stuff like that. Yeah, Jesse, and right. the ener- and the energy <laughs> for sure. Yeah, where where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about the work that you do? I am Sensory SLP on social, and then people don't even know your first name; they only know him as Speech Dude. Yeah, Speech Dude. So on TikTok, Instagram. My website; it's all Speech Dude. So you can go to Instagram, TikTok, type in Speech Dude. You can go to um, speechdude.com and that's where I'm at. I'm lurking in those areas. <laughs> if you won't find me on, I should be on LinkedIn, but I'm not there. <laughs> but I'm everywhere else. Jesse, <laughs> Jesse and Chris, I just want to thank you so much, especially working in this interview before you bring in baby number four for you, or baby number three or four. Four. Where are we at? Baby number four. Oh my gosh. Baby number four. So thank you for work. And I just want to say, because I'm one of those people that because of the work that you put out there, I know I felt less alone and more empowered and more encouraged in the work I do, not just in my clinical leadership work, but most importantly as a mom. So I just want to thank you both for your time. Um, Keep up the good work and appreciate you both. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Before you go, I want to make sure you leave with a couple key points from this important conversation with Jesse Ginsburg and Chris Wanger. Now, we discussed terms like neurodivergence, persistent demand avoidance, ways people sue through activities like stimming, and why using high and low functioning terms can be so harmful. Please make sure to take some time to read more about these topics and listen to those with their lived experiences in these areas. 
And I'm curious, how are you going to integrate your new learnings from this conversation into how you lead? And how can you show more compassion and understanding for those with neurodivergence and sensitivity issues? Now, I know so many people who find out later in life, like they have ADHD or autism, OCD, dyslexia, sensory struggles, etc. And all of this has fueled so many of their woundings and traumas around education and their identity as a learner. When they find out that they have these diagnoses and hold these identities, there leads to so much grief and loss. And also so much reckoning with years of feeling too much or broken, like who they are is a bad thing. And I believe we could take so much of what Jesse and Chris shared today and not only advocate for the young people in our lives, but the adults in the spaces that we lead that have different ways of living and experiencing this world. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this very special episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode impacted you, I'd be honored if you would rate it, review it, and share it with someone you know. Thank you so much.